Emma Hegarty, trademark attorney for By George Legal. We're sitting out here in your beautiful, funky offices in, what would we call this, Fitzroy? Or Brunswick. Brunswick. Sydney Road, Brunswick. Sydney Road, Brunswick. Yes. And we've got all Sydney Road trams and traffic with us to um, provide the appropriate uh, soundtrack for this interview. But anyway, it's lovely to sit down and have a chat to you because our audience would love to know about trademark law, um, intellectual property, how you fit into it and how your firm fits into it. So I just want to start by asking you, what is a trademark in an Australian sense? Well, a trademark is a number of things, but what is common is that a trademark makes your goods and services, whatever your business offers, that consumers will immediately identify the offerings that you provide to your company. So that's the basic common denominator. A trademark can be many things. Um, more often than not, it is either a word or a logo, but it can also be a scent, a jingle, a colour, all sorts of different things. But generally we um, find that businesses protect their trademark business names and product names and the accompanying logos or um, devices that um, they market with those names. Well, let's come back to the specifics, but I want to talk generally about the concept of intellectual property and why in business people should protect their intellectual property. And maybe you could tell us some reasons um, why, or maybe not some, the outcomes of not protecting your intellectual property, just in a general sense. Certainly. Well, it's a, it's a very good commercial decision to um, explore the registration path, not just for trademarks, but for patents and designs. I'll probably speak mainly to trademarks because that's where I'm qualified. At first instance, registering your trademark, it's a public record that you have legal rights in your trademark that anybody can access, that anybody can check. And at its basic, that is often a deterrent from your competitors from using anything that's similar. It also provides you rights to enforce your, your, um, your trademark. So if somebody does use something that's similar on goods or services that you might be commercialising, then you've got a strong basis to stop them from doing that. By contrast, um, a lot of people say, well, I have automatic common law rights when I use a trademark to identify my goods or services. And that's true. However, if you wanted to stop somebody else from infringing your market, it's much easier to do that if you have a registered trademark. To um, take action against someone based on your common law rights, there are a number of thresholds that you have to meet. And the first of which is that you have a sufficient reputation in your mark such that it's proven that somebody else is infringing your common law rights. The next thing you have to prove is that they, the other party um, knowingly infringed your rights. And then the third element is that because of their infringing um, activities, your business has suffered. So it's a much higher legal threshold to reach. But if you've got a registered trademark, you've got prima facie rights to stop somebody else from using a trademark that's not only identical, but is similar for not just the goods and services that you use or offer, but for similar goods and services. So it's a lot broader. So I know it's a very complex subject and I think um, trying to sort of generalise it too much could be dangerous in the conversation. <laughs> I don't want to put that on you. But essentially what you're saying is that I could register a trademark and notionally I could sit on that, you know, while I get my business organised for the next 12 months, 
and that affords me some protection as opposed to someone saying, oh, I registered a business name with CAV at one stage and, and I was going to get round to it, whereas you've sort of, am I right saying you've shown that intent by registering the mark and it gives you, affords you some sort of time and luxury to get round to actually trading? Well, there's a couple of things I want to um, respond um, with in regarding that. It, uh, the difference between a trademark and a business name, you don't have ownership rights over any business name that you register. So they're quite separate and um, very different. Whereas once you register your trademark, your rights backdate to the date that you filed your application. So once it's basically a first come, first serve, once you file your application, if you get to the stage where you are able to achieve registration, your registration rights backdate to that filing date. So anybody who has infringed your trademark in that period, and that can be as short as seven and a half months, it can be longer depending on the, the um, application process, but your rights backdate to the filing date. But I have to, a business name doesn't provide you proprietary rights in any trademarks. So you said that you put some months on that process. It is even a fairly regulatory application, not met in any opposition. It can take quite a long time, can't it? Yeah, so the shortest period that you can register a trademark from filing to registration is seven and a half months, around seven and a half months. And that's because Australia has to comply with an international um, agreement. Often it can take longer, depending on what happens um, in that process. So once you file, there's um, RP Australia or any international office for that matter will examine your application and check whether it complies with the legal requirements depending on the jurisdiction. If they think that it doesn't, they will issue an examination report and say, we, we can't accept your application because of these reasons. You have, you've given time to respond. In the best case scenario, your application is examined and no objections are raised during examination and then within um, around six months or less than that, maybe five and a half months, your application is accepted. And then after that stage, there's a two month period where at acceptance, your application will be advertised um, and any other, any third party or um, competitor, for instance, have the opportunity to oppose your application. And then that's another, um, Another journey that, um, if an, uh, but if nobody opposes, then you will achieve um, registration and a certificate will issue. When you make an application, there are some practical steps, and my experience of it is that you actually got to nominate it within a sort of confine or a, a, a category or a series of categories for which that mark applies. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that process? Yes. Yeah, so there is um, a classification system that. M the majority of countries in the world um, apply and it classifies goods or services. There are 45 classes. When you apply for a trademark, you don't apply for every single class in this classification system. You nominate what, what you want to register. So for instance, if you're a media company, you want to nominate media services, which will fall into a particular class. If you're a chemical company or an agricultural company and you're offering agricultural and chemical goods to your consumers, then you nominate um, those particular goods which fall in different in, in another class. So for instance, if someone wanted to um, register the same mark for that somebody else has already registered but they've nominated different classes, they might be able to achieve registration because the goods and services don't conflict. So notionally you'd have someone with a similar or like 
mark, but they're in a completely different class. That's right. And I suppose that's an important point because people might, con- I'm assuming there's a lot of litigation that doesn't proceed when people, when the penny drops, is that right? That, well, they're fully within their rights to be having that mark because it's got nothing to do with what you're doing. Yeah, so it's not just whether somebody's a comparison of marks, it's also a comparison of what's registered or what's being used in the marketplace. So is there a bit of horse trading going on when you've got Certainly. a... Certainly. So when you've got a, a... You're representing a client and somebody's opposed, there's a bit of argy-bargy backwards and forwards to say, well, hang on, you're not really working in that area. You say you are, but you might have 25 years ago. And come on, let's be fair and reasonable about it. Absolutely. Sort of there's a lot of horse trading and it's not just based on um, what companies are offering to their consumers. It's also the sort of commercial context of those individual companies. So if you've got a larger player who might be an international company, they've probably got the wherewithal to throw their weight around a little bit more as opposed to a local company that um, hasn't maybe got the funding or the desire really to um, fight a David and Goliath battle. And there are a lot of sort of commercial agreements that are achieved that satisfy both parties um, sometimes they can be a little bit frustrating, but it's just the nature of the the beast, really. So, for instance, there are particular international companies that are very um, vigilant in watching trademark registers around the world to check whether there are any there's anybody who might be using something uh, marks that are similar to marks that are valuable to them. And I think that's where it comes back to the reason why people should register their trademarks is that it becomes a valuable asset um, for people to identify as being connected to your business. It also gives meaning to what you're offering. So people, when they see certain marks, they think that's gonna be quality, that's consistent, it's reliable, I'm always gonna get the same thing. It could be cost effective, it could be more, it could be more expensive, but I don't care because I know what I'm going to get. And that's the value of registering your trademark. I'm not sure this is a little bit off left field, but does that mean theoretically that mark has an inherent value? And can people actually trade that back to a competitor and say, well, my business, I'm in the business of selling my business, one of my assets is my trademark? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's one of the things that it becomes a valuable asset, especially for businesses that might be starting off small. They get to a certain point and they think, look, this is where we are on a winner here we can market this and anybody who is purchasing a business is is most likely going to say, well, what what concrete assets do you have? And um, IP, IP protection and IP registrations in patents and trademarks, designs, um, even if you have confidential information regarding something that's really integral and super important and highly valuable in a commercial sense, um, that's what people will be looking at. So it really adds, although they they are intangible assets in a sense, they really are something that if you, you're looking long-term um, focused to sell your business, that somebody who's purchasing are going to want to know, do you have um, registered rights in your intellectual property? It's yeah. very important. If I've been trading for 20 years without any um, trademark protection or any trademark, is it too late to register your mark? No, no, it's not. However, it's quite late. The sooner that you get your foot in the door, the sooner you can get a registration. The longer you leave it, the more, there's a greater chance that it will be more difficult to register because the, the, the trademark registers around the world 
are becoming increasingly sort of cluttered with, with registered marks. It's, it's never too late, but it's also um, advisable from a legal perspective that once you achieve, and this is a value of um, registering your trademarks, is that once you achieve registration, you have a prima facie defence to any infringement allegations made by somebody else. So we always recommend that people register their trademarks because if there's somebody out there that um, trademark searchers haven't sort of um, disclosed that could be upset by you using a particular mark for certain goods and services and they allege that you've infringed their mark, if you've honestly adopted your trademark and you've got a registration, then generally you can um, withstand an infringement allegation. So that's another benefit of registering your trademark. Is there a limit on how long your mark is registered for? No. However, you can you can keep your register your trademark registered and renewed every ten years in perpetuity. However, the proviso to that is that it can be challenged by another party if you're not actually using it. It's just a sort of public policy um, avenue that um, IP Australia have created so that the, mar the, the, the register isn't cluttered so that people can check the market, they can do online searches and they say, look, that, that trademark's been registered for 24 years, but I can't find any use of it online. Um, I've visited that address, um, the company's been deregistered, so I'm pretty sure it's not in use, and that means that that party can lodge what is called a non-use removal action, and if that's successful, then the mark will be removed from the register. So you, you can have your trademark and keep it registered and renewed every 10 years. It's not a slam dunk. It won't be removed unless it's challenged, so you, it will be maintained on the register unless it's challenged by another party. Just as an aside, you spoke about a business name here in Victoria. Is no, you don't actually have. Any, there's no intellectual property assigned to that. Effectively, what you're no. saying. No. What about um, domains and um, domain space and things like that? How does that fit in the whole scheme of things? It's not registrable property, but use of a domain name can be advantageous. So there's no there's no proprietary rights in domain name registrations. However, they are. Um, a valuable asset that show use of your trademark that can go towards, for instance, overcoming objections during examination of an application. So if, if you've had, just going back to that scenario where you said, I've been using this trademark for a long time and now I want to register it, and you file your application, the trademark examiner says, look, we can't accept it because somebody else has got something that was filed before your application and it's registered. And you say, well, look, I've been using my trademark well before they filed their application. You can lodge evidence of that use, which can include domain name use, that shows that you have adopted that mark, you've been using it for the goods and services, and that can help you achieve a registration. So there's no prima facie proprietary rights in domain name registrations, but they are a valuable um, commodity in registering your your trademarks and in developing your brand um, and often you'll find that a lot of companies will um, secure domain name registrations before they even consider registering their trademark. Well there's a whole different umpire for the for domain names. There is, yeah. there is. Do they actually talk to IP Australia or anything like that? No, well not, no, not um, directly. It's a, it's the dispute resolution um, 
policy in Australia, it's fairly new, it's difficult to navigate and enforce your rights, it's expensive as well, and that's probably why we, we would recommend registering your trademarks. Um, it's easier to enforce your rights in a domain name dispute if you've got the registered rights in the trademark. Um, and that's what you find a lot of like large telco Australian telco companies. They will have a lot of trademark registrations. They'll also keep a watch on domain name registrations and they'll, uh, they'll stop other people from um, registering or they'll, they'll re-secure the domain name that somebody else has registered on the basis of their trademark rights. Well, let's sticking, sticking with that theme, am I right in saying that if you're in a dispute and you've got to go to the umpire um, and you've got, well, let's say, somebody's passing off as being you using Facebook or um, Google and buying AdWords and things like that. So does having this registered trademark have some sort of value in that sort of situation? Absolutely, and that's where it goes back to it's a prima facie IP right. You can always dispute something down the common law path, but it's a lot harder. And so if you've got a trademark registration, then you're in a much stronger position to enforce your legal rights against somebody who might be passing off. So just can I talk a little bit about the structure of the entity that is applying for the mark? So anybody can apply for a trademark. So if I'm a sole trader and I'm the applicant and I've had that, um, and then there's I want to sell my business to another sole trader or another company, the transfer of the ownership, or even internally, let's say I want to go from a sole trader to an incorporated entity, does the legal ownership of the trademark therefore cease because there's a change in the ownership or is there some way I can transfer that trademark effectively from being a sole trader to a shareholder in a small family company for example? No, you, absolutely you can transfer those rights. For the instances that you've um, given it's an assignment of rights so you can transfer the ownership from um, Chris Mirabella to Voir Media Proprietary Limited. Um, <laughs> You're very well researched. <laughs> or communist. Uh, yes, or communist. <laughs> yeah. um, you, but that's interesting to note that um, that you mentioned communist. You, um, a business name cannot be the owner of um, a registered trademark. So to be a valid owner of a trademark in Australia, the entity has to possess a legal entity, so it has to be a sole trader or a company. Oh, so a handshake um, partnership doesn't uh, pass no, the muster, is that what you're saying? No. I'm devastated. No. Yes. <laughs> but it is but you could register it in the name of the um, of, 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 of your in, of both of um, yourself mm. um, and, and your partner, mm. and then once you establish your legal company entity, um, for instance, then mm. you can transfer the rights to, to the company. Um, now, you talked earlier on, and I know we could sit here for hours talking about the minutiae of registering what you're actually registering. So you, you indicated, you gave us a bit of a flavour before, you could be registering a word or a um, colour. Is yes. that right? Yes. Um, so it's very so difficult, but you can. Yeah, yes. okay. A scent, for instance, a, a jingle, like the Intel jingle, sounds. But generally, more often than not, people register word marks or logo marks that might be the word plus a, a device element or it could be just just a logo without any any words but it's not restricted to those forms in your experience with your clients what do people what the, are their first instincts when they come to you to say i want you to register these words or is it the logo or is it 
Well, the important thing is that legally there's a difference between your what rights you achieve when you register a word and what rights you achieve when you register a logo. So if you achieve a, regi a trademark registration for a word only, you have the ability to theoretically stop anybody using the exact word or a similar word for similar goods and services. However, if you're, if you're using a word with a logo that includes a, a sort of a stylistic element, somebody else might be using a different word with the identical stylistic element, but you can't enforce those rights. So that's where we always, well, we generally recommend that if you're using a combination mark, that you seek protection for the logo element. So that means that somebody who might be marketing down the road with the same goods or services that want to use the same, almost the same logo, that you can stop them from doing that. So that the, the value is different for the different um, types of trademarks. It's so complex. It is, it's, and that's, I think that's probably um, one of the really good things for people to remember when they're considering protecting their intellectual property and their trademarks, um, which is what we've been discussing is that it's a very complicated area of law. It can be very difficult to navigate. Fingers crossed, you know, on a great day, hopefully you can file an application and, you know, get it through um, without striking any difficulties. But that's where I think the value in obtaining legal advice is really important because it is possible for anybody to file a trademark application with IP Australia and a lot of people do self-file and um, I might be biased, but we tend to find that IP Australia is a lot more lenient on people who self-file. However, if they do strike troubles during examination, for instance, and a, and a report issues, people who have self-filed will, will sometimes receive a report and think, I don't understand what is going on here, and they just give up on the process. And that's where professionals, firms, especially by George Legal, are able to help um, navigate the issues because often there is an answer, there is a way to navigate the waters to overcome things that might crop up and we've experienced that with each other, Chris, that mm. it, it, you can navigate through a lot of different things um, but you have to know the law to be able to do that and if you self-file and you don't know the law it makes it a lot more difficult um, if you do strike troubles, if you like as I said, if, if objections are raised during an examination or if somebody, another party opposes your application after it's accepted. What advice would you give um, as the first step and why, here's your pitch, Emma, um, I, mean, I think you've given us a bit of a clue, but tell us a little bit about your firm and what should they do in the first instance to get this sort of expert advice and tell me what, why your business is in such a good place to do provide that advice. Well, look, I'll talk a bit about By George Legal we're a small IP firm, but we are there. We've got a number of really experienced intellectual property lawyers, and we deal with companies and clients that are in a large array of fields: food and beverage, retail, artists, media companies, agricultural companies, not-for-profit organisations, and we've got a very large network of people that we can call on if, for instance, you're an Australian company and you want to commercialise your business overseas, 
We've got a large network of overseas associates that we deal with on a daily basis. And I think the having worked in medium and large and small intellectual property firms, I think the beauty of By George Legal is that we're a happy group. We, um, we enjoy each other and our main focus is delivering the best outcomes for our clients based on our not only our legal experience but also we've got a lot of commercial and industry perspective because we've got a large array of clients and we develop seemingly not the the sort of orthodox legal relationship with our clients um, we try to put things in plain english you know we get rid of the formalities in our um, written correspondence because we just think it makes it a lot easier for our clients. It's, it's more enjoyable for us as well to be like that. And we find that um, the connections that we build with our clients are a lot more substantial than they're not just based on hourly rates and trying to you know just get, the, get as much money out of our clients as possible. Um, we've got a real um, empathy for our clients and we really um, go into bat for them and um, try to understand their commercial perspective because I think that that can be lost by the wayside, especially in bigger large firms where it's so important to meet quotas and monthly billing targets, that sometimes the actual commercial perspective of your client can be lost in all of that and people focus too much on winning the fight, which often means spending a lot more money as opposed to understanding where your client is coming from. And that's particularly pertinent in the last year that we've all experienced, where, I mean, some clients have really excelled in the conditions that we've had to deal with, but other clients not so much. And I think it's really important to bring it back to, if I was working, if I was owning this company commercially, what is the best decision to make? for my intellectual property in this particular situation. And I think that that's what By George Legal offers. And we're, we're fun. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And I can speak, and look, we'll let the cat out of the bag. You and I are having, um, uh, we've got a professional relationship with some work that we're doing. And I suppose, I can endorse everything you've said, by the way. But I suppose my observation out of that, being on the other side of the fence, is I think the thing that I've had to not so much learn, but sort of accept that the compromise is part of the process. Certainly. In, in, in my case and the work that we're doing, we've been challenged, a relatively small organisation being challenged by a multinational, international, who's exactly sort of kept an eye on what we're doing here in Melbourne. And whilst their case seems to be fairly flimsy and that, you know, it's hard to see how they're even carrying on business in Australia, but the reality is you can either spend a lot of energy and throw money up against the wall to notionally win a, you know, some theoretical, you know, high moral ground, or you can just get on with the art of compromising, being realistic about the commercial outcome and the, the commercial reality of, well, if we agree to this, it's pretty much going to be what we want. And yes. we just cut through all of that. So that's been my experience. But I imagine you've seen all sorts. And I'm sure you get the dogmatic clients who will just go to war with people. Yes. I'm sure you can tell all those horror stories. But I think that there's also some good outcomes where, um, particularly that by George has been involved in recently, small businesses that have succeeded in protecting their intellectual property when it was challenged by um, another company. And 
both of those companies were probably, in the grand scheme of things, sort of smallish players. But um, it doesn't mean to say that a, a, a sort of a startup or a smaller company cannot fight those big battles and really commit to their intellectual property and commit to the quality and the um, the effort that they put into their marketing and their branding. But sometimes it is if you've if you're rocking up to the boxing ring and you know you've got a big player there and they they might be they might have a machine gun with no with, with no bullets in it but you don't know that and whether it's worth making like calling calling them on it um, and that's where I think that we having been experienced in the industry you can sort of say look it's no skin off your nose to come come to this point with to negotiations and that will make them happy and then it you know, soon we can put it behind us and you can carry on. Um, however, IP dispute resolution is can be a very expensive process. And if, if you're willing and you're able to go down that path, it can be very rewarding. And um, it also can be a mark on the, the, the whiteboard for everybody to say, you know, your competitors to see, look, we did we did take on this other company and we're willing to do that. So it shows a willingness to really protect your brand. But sometimes if you've just started out, it's probably not worth worth the expense and the stress. And Emma, how long have you worked in this area of the law? Well, I've worked in this area since 2001. Um, I started off in a small um, IP firm or a medium-sized IP firm in Kew, which now lo no longer exists. The IP landscape in Australia has changed quite dramatically in sort of the last probably sort of six to eight years where um, the larger IP firms have bought out smaller to medium-sized firms and then um, floated publicly on the stock exchange. And I've seen really the benefits of that. I worked in a large firm a few years back and they were a great firm. There are drawbacks. Um, but it's just people do what they think is right. And, um, but I think that uh, a small firm that is independent, like bought by Georgie's, uh, that doesn't have to uh, be constrained by its um, fundamental structure um, is beneficial for our clients. Um, Emma, if you wanted to, um, let's say you're a bit of a new to this whole concept, they can contact you. I it was the first part of the process. I assume the clock doesn't start rolling and immediately? No, no, not at all. So um, you can get in contact with us in a variety of ways. Um, generally, word of mouth is often what we find um, some of our clients um, get in touch with us. Others, we've had people who have recently contact me, sending me a message on LinkedIn, and um, we've... Um, developed a commercial relationship out of that. We're open and despite um, the lockdown in Melbourne recently, we've been working continuously through our uh, isolation restrictions. We're very prompt um, and we, we really enjoy the learning about our clients and helping them establish themselves and register their intellectual property. What a great story. I could sit here and talk about it all day. Um, I should maybe just ask one question, and it's probably a bit unfair, but the, the technical cost of lodging an application is around about the vicinity of what? 
Yeah. It depends. So at going back to our discussion about the classification system, the cost to file your application depend on how many classes you nominate in that classification. So IP Australia charges a, a set fee for each individual class you nominate. Our legal service fees are also based on how many classes are nominated when, when a, a client applies. There are additional costs. If your application sails through without any objections, without any oppositions, you will achieve a registration. And then we have, our firm has a legal nominal services cost for processing the acceptance and letting you know that your application has been accepted, docketing the opposition deadline, and then sending, sending you the certificate of registration. So it really depends. Generally, we find that, for instance, if a client lodges a, um, a single application in, for instance, two classes, it's generally around about $1,500 plus GST to um, file the application, and then there's um, a small fee of um, $330 um, at the end of the process, which is charged further down the track. So people should just ask, they should just talk to you. And, and that's, I think, the mm. important thing is that if you get in contact with us, we don't start charging you straight away. We will have telephone conversations. That's one of our um, preferred ways in dealing with our clients is actually getting on the phone and talking to our clients, um, have, having lots of telephone conversations, emails backwards and forwards, drafting things for them, for them to review and and it's only when we send them an engagement letter that says, look, okay, this is what you'd like us to do. Here are our terms. These are your rights. Are you, do you want us to proceed? This is what it's going to cost you. For um, these, these are the costs that we know you will incur. There may be additional, but we don't know what they may be. And then once they say go ahead, then that's a go ahead. But we don't charge them for um, a telephone conversation or, yeah, it's the initial sort of process. Emma Hegarty from By George Legal. Thank you so much for joining us. Feel free to contact us. And you're We're Emma, ready to take your call. Emma.hegarty at bygeorgelegal.com, is it? Emma, Emma at bygeorgelegal.com.au. Yeah, terrific. Yes. No problems. Thanks oh, very much, otherwise, Chris. Yeah, no pleasure. It was great. It was yeah. terrific to hear that. You could sit here all day. But um, loved it. Thank you.